Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Ziad Abu Rish. He's an expert in modern Middle East history, social movements, and popular protests, and U.S. Middle East policy. He also is a director of the Middle East and North African Studies Certificate Program at Ohio University. We're talking about the impact of President Trump recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and moving the U.S. Embassy to that city. The move has been rebuffed by many of our European allies, and critics say it threatens to further destabilize the Middle East. My conversation with Dr. Abu Rish followed five straight days of protests in the region. We heard what President Trump said last week, declaring Jerusalem the new capital of Israel and saying that we're moving all of our embassies there. What does that actually mean? Can you break it down for us? You know, what does that mean to the Israelis? What's that mean to the United States? What's that mean to uh, the Palestinians? Absolutely. Well, Tom, what we have to recognize first is that uh, President Trump's announcement was that the United States was recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital and would proceed uh, to move the United States Embassy from where it currently is in Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Um, and I think the way you broke down the question is very useful to think about it for Israel, for the United States, for the Palestinians, and for others. Let's begin with uh, Israel. This announcement by the Trump administration is the latest example of a near-complete uh, U.S. diplomatic, military, and economic support for Israeli policies uh, towards the Palestinian people, the occupied Palestinian territories, and the Middle East more generally. While I think uh, people are right to point the finger at Trump for breaking precedent in the sense that no U.S. president since the recognition of Israel has recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, um, we should uh, understand that Israel itself declared Jerusalem its capital shortly after 
conquering West Jerusalem in the 1948 war, and then after the 1967 war, when it conquered East Jerusalem, it declared a unified Jerusalem. So both East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem, its capital and its undivided capital. So um, what we have here is the United States endorsing the acquisition of territory by war. We have the United States endorsing Israel's policies of increasing the number of Jewish-Israeli population in Jerusalem and in East Jerusalem in particular. We have the United States endorsing Israel's policies of expanding the municipal boundaries of Jerusalem in such a way to play a demographic game between Jewish-Israelis and the Palestinian population. So this is a big win for the Israeli government and for what is on record as being the most right-wing Israeli government in history. Um, perhaps paralleling what some claim is the most right-wing U.S. White House administration right. in history. So that is uh, the case for Israel. Uh, for the United States, um, I think we need to understand that um, Congress passed the Jerusalem Embassy Act in 1995 with a major bipartisan support. In the Senate, it passed 93 to 5, and in the House, it passed 374 to 37. This was in 1995, calling for recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and moving the embassy to Jerusalem. Presidents since then, President Clinton, have signed repeated waivers to avoid or postpone making that move. So while we should uh, acknowledge the responsibility and role of the Trump administration in pushing this decision forward, we also need to understand that we have a problem in the United States political system in which there is bipartisan political support for the types of policies the Israeli government has pursued uh, since its creation. Uh, both vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Palestinians and vis-a-vis -vis the general uh, Middle East. For the Palestinians, this is another example of the great powers of the world dating back to Great Britain and France, but now the United States um, dismissing their political claims, dismissing their rights to self-determination, and uh, refusing to acknowledge uh, their existence, both political and otherwise, on the territories that the Israeli government controls, whether in its 1948 borders, whether in the West Bank, or whether in East Jerusalem. All of this sounds immensely complicated and with short-term and long-term ramifications. Uh, Let's let's look at some of those if we can. But before we do, the relationship between Trump and Netanyahu seems to be a close personal relationship, at least to the uh, layperson out here, a closer personal relationship than we've seen certainly in recent times. Uh, and how much of this is personal and how much of this is political? In, in other words, why now? That's a great question, Tom. Um, I'm one of those people that tends to think that we should privilege the political when we analyze how heads of states deal with each other because ultimately 
most of their behavior is based on their desire to perpetuate their existence in office and their power in office. Uh, certainly, the Trump administration's relationship with the Israeli government and Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu in particular, is much closer than it was, say, with the Obama administration. Structurally speaking, in terms of if we think of U.S. diplomatic support for Israel, U.S. economic aid to Israel, U.S. military aid to Israel, things have been consistent through the Clinton, Bush Obama and Trump administration. But I think what we have uh, in this current moment are two uh, seriously embattled heads of state. Uh, Trump, uh, we can call him an embattled president in many ways, um, both because of criticisms outside of the Republican Party, but also the inability until this recent tax reform initiative to get anything done because of infighting within the Republican Party, including infighting between him and members of the Republican Party. There are all sorts of allegations being made against him regarding corruption, collusion, so on and so forth. We also have uh, the possibility of a criminal indictment coming at uh, Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel because of a corruption scandal. So I think for both of these heads of state, um, they're looking for certain political victories that can uh, uh, bolster their credentials domestically. Uh, For Benjamin Netanyahu, this is uh, uh, the opportunity to play to the far right base, uh, and as well as uh, uh, the mainstream base that wants Jerusalem as its capital in Israel. For uh, Trump, this is an ability to placate um, the evangelical Christian vote. Uh, that see Israel as the fulfillment of the reconstitution of the Jewish kingdom so that the second coming of Christ can commence. Um, In both of these cases, their relationship to one another, I think, is uh, because it provides them with some of the few sources of international support and legitimacy that they are experiencing. Both Benjamin Netanyahu and Donald Trump are isolated in many ways on the international stage. They are deemed to be far right. They are deemed to be hawkish. They are deemed to be a danger to international peace and international stability. So it is not surprising that they would find common cause both to support one another and to help one another score political victories in their domestic spheres. Recently, we've had difficulty uh, diplomatically because of certain things President Trump has said with Great Britain. Uh, Coming out against his move, we've had Germany and and France. Uh, As we're uh, talking today, uh, Netanyahu just uh, made a presentation to the European Union uh, trying to get support for for this decision. Why are the allies of the U.S. so opposed to this? And Netanyahu almost seems like an emissary <laughs> for Trump to the European Union on, on this. Am I reading that wrong? I don't think you're reading the emissary point wrong in the sense that, uh, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu, despite his hawkish positions and extremely violent policies, has some understanding of how to function in the diplomatic world. President Trump, unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, does not. Um, 
I think what we need to understand, first of all, is that the objection to declaring Jerusalem the capital of Israel is not simply a political objection. It is an objection based in international law. We have countless uh, UN Security Council resolutions uh, dating back to 1967, 1980, and most recently in 2016 that recognize East Jerusalem and the West Bank as occupied territories. And as occupied territories and as Israel being the occupying power, it has certain responsibilities to maintain the political status of these territories in particular ways until a negotiated settlement is reached. Um, We also have the International Court of Justice that has recognized East Jerusalem as occupied territories. The European Union has recognized this area as occupied territory. So people understand that the United States recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel is a flagrant violation and slap in the face of the legitimacy of international law. Now, I know some people don't care about international law, but it's pretty dangerous territory to start to say, well, international law doesn't matter. The fourth Geneva Conventions that were passed as a result of German aggressions in World War II and what they did to civilian populations are no longer binding by parties in the international system. We also understand that um, people across the world recognize the political nature of this declaration and how it could inflame uh, various groups uh, and strain certain relationships with uh, governments in the Middle East and North Africa, but also elsewhere. So in, in many ways, this is viewed as a violation of international law but also a politically destabilizing move. Politically destabilizing, let's, let's take that to, to the next step. Uh, some critics of the, the move have certainly said that this will put an end to any possibility of peace talks or long-term peace talks. Uh, Is that part of what you're talking about in this destabilization? Yes, absolutely. Although I think we should recognize that the peace process initiated by the 1993 Oslo Peace Accord signed between the government of Israel and the Palestine Liberation Organization has been effectively dead since 2001. Uh, I would I would argue. And in that way, this announcement by the Trump administration is simply the official announcement of that process being dead rather like, than like leading. Like the coroner pronouncing somebody <laughs> yes. or something dead. Yes, yes. It, it, it makes it impossible for anyone to claim anymore that the United States is playing the role of a mediator in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It makes it impossible for anyone to claim that Israel is willing to negotiate on the core issues that are defined as final status issues between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And so for these reasons, uh, many of the allies are concerned because they continue to be invested in what is called a two-state solution, an Israeli state and a Palestinian state that they claim can be achieved through negotiations and on the basis of this division between Israel and its 1948 boundaries and the occupied Palestinian That both countries would exist and, and both people would exist, but there'd be territory defined for each. Correct, correct. Um, in this case, East Jerusalem 
has been annexed by Israel after 1967, and now the United States has recognized that annexation, both in terms of the House and Senate in 1995, but now in the White House. Um, so uh, that is a destabilizing element as well. For others concerned with the current uh, battle of great powers in the Middle East between the United States and Russia, for example, uh, between Saudi Arabia and Iran, this very clearly undercuts the ability of Saudi Arabia, not that many in the region took it seriously, but to claim that it represents the interests of the people of the region. Uh, a strong U.S. ally, um, its criticisms of the uh, U.S. statement have been mild because of the close relationship it has with the United States. So one is worried about the unintended uh, uh, destabilizing consequences of this decision, in addition to the expected destabilizing consequences. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further, not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands. And this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud. To make it clear. Make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. As we're talking, there have been five straight days of violent protests in the region. Uh, some observers said that was expected and more there will be more to come. But let's go beyond that if, if we can. Uh, what, talk about the religious ramifications here and what that means to the politics of the situation and the politics of the region. Absolutely. But before I respond to that, I just want to make a note about the protests, which sure. is very important. Please. Please. Um, the reality is that the majority of the protests the last five days have been nonviolent. Uh, um, they have uh, uh, involved broad swaths of populations uh, you know, in the Palestinian territories, in the Middle East, and outside of the Middle East, by the way, that are expressing their objection to this policy by the United States, and in so doing, also the Israeli policy. I'd also like to say that one of the problems with mainstream media, mm -hmm. uh, and, and corporate media in particular, 
is that violence is always used as the word to describe activities by those opposing the United States or opposing Israeli policies. What we have is 40 years, four decades of Israeli structural violence in the form of a military occupation of the West Bank uh, and East Jerusalem uh, and the Gaza Strip, which the UN Rapporteur still recognizes as occupied by Israel. We have 40 years of playing the demographic game of settling Jewish-Israeli civilian population in the Palestinian territories in contradistinction and violation of international law and the laws of war. We have 40 years of uh, uh, land confiscations, home demolitions, right? So when I think when we want to talk about violence, we need to look at structural violence and not just uh, opposition violence. Structural violence, institutional violence, uh, in addition to acts of war. Uh, acts of true, war. True acts violence. Of, yes, true, true violence, the daily violence that uh, uh, eviscerates one's political being, one's sense of community, one's ability to function on a basic and, and daily level. That being said, there is a religious component, which is also important, which you asked about. Um, I tend to think it's less important than, than, than this kind of structural violence we're talking about. But Jerusalem is deemed to be a, a, a holy city for uh, the three main monotheistic faiths of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. This religious and political significance was recognized in the 1947 United Nations Partition Plan, which while it decreed the creation of a Jewish state and an Arab state, it decreed that Jerusalem would be an international special regime under United Nations protection. So um, that proposal, that policy was first violated in 1948 when Israel annexed West Jerusalem and declared it as its capital. And then again after 67 when Israel annexed East Jerusalem and claimed all of a united Jerusalem as its capital. Um, but we've seen statements, by the way, um, from religious figures uh, in within the Jewish faith, within the Muslim faith, and within the Christian faith expressing opposition uh, to this announcement by the United States. Um, the heads of churches in Jerusalem have expressed uh, opposition historically, but also most recently to this announcement. And I should note that uh, over 130 Jewish studies scholars have recently issued a petition uh, uh, expressing their dismay and disappointment in President Trump's announcement. So I think we need to understand that while there is a religious significance to Jerusalem, the dividing line on how people feel about President Trump's uh, announcement vis-a-vis -vis Jerusalem and Israeli policies vis-a-vis -vis Jerusalem is not a division that falls along these religious lines. It is a political division in which we find Muslims, Christians, and Jews Arabs and uh, a progressive Jewish Israelis on one side, uh, but yet we find the Israeli government, its right-wing base, and now the United States government on the other side. You look at the Middle East and we have Syria, recent demonstrations in, in Lebanon, we have Iran and Iraq, uh, unstable and, and, and tender boxes, uh, uh, Afghanistan still American troops there. 
Turkey is in upheaval and and uh, uh, discord. Uh, this seems to be an area where one would not want to tip the politics <laughs> very much with this tinderbox that we're dealing with uh, called the Middle East. That's correct. Um, however, on another level, uh, much of that de destabilization and many of these problems are in part, if not in whole, a function of previous U.S. policies. If we think of the United States invasion and occupation of Iraq, which completely devastated and destroyed that country. If we think of U.S. policies in Afghanistan, whether with the Mujahideens or after September 11th with its invasion and occupation of Afghanistan. Um, if we think of the constant ramping up of the anti-Iran rhetoric and the initiation of what is really a Middle East Cold War in some level, but if you look at places like Syria and Yemen, there's nothing cold about it. Right. Um, so in some ways, yes, if one looks at the map of the Middle East today, one would say this step does not make sense. This is going to inflame the region. On the other hand, we have a clear track record of U.S. policy being part and parcel of what inflames the Middle East uh, in terms of structural violence and other modes of violence. We have to understand that uh, the Trump administration, I believe, and, and this is based on people who've been analyzing the internal workings of the Trump administration, is looking for a quick series of victories to bolster itself as it comes to the end of its first year. Uh, we know how that worked out with regards to literally hammering through uh, the, the tax plan with scribbles on, 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 margins. Piece, on the margins of pieces of paper and no clear understanding amongst those that voted for it on what was actually inside of it. But we also see this in terms of the announcement uh, for uh, the Trump administration to play to the Christian evangelical base to placate uh, uh, other right-wing forces within the United States, but also to strengthen its alliance with Israel and those few international actors that are willing to, um, you know, uh, stand side by side with the current U.S. administration on the international scene. In that sense, it makes sense, right? Because mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's what the Trump administration has been trying to do. We hear complaints, and we've talked to people on, on this program uh, talking about the State Department and what disarray it is in. Uh, this weekend, there were some articles in reputable uh, news organizations about uh, almost rebellion <laughs> within the State Department's personnel. So many top people leaving uh, the State Department complaining that Tillerson is gutting it and on the recommendation of, of Trump. How much does it play that we don't have a State Department that's functional uh, to, to its – uh, top degree, or that we don't have a State Department that uh, is taking the active role that it has uh, in the past in policy? I think that's a great question. And um, one of the complicating factors in answering it is that, again, when it comes to U.S. policy vis-a-vis -vis the Israeli government, there has not only been consistency across Republican and Democratic presidents, but also across the Department of Defense, the Central Intelligence Agency, and the State Department in advocating a, a what is effectively pro-Israeli government policy. However, 
again, thanks to some investigative reporting, we have indications that this particular announcement was opposed by the Secretary of State, by the Secretary of Defense, and by the director of the CIA, and that uh, ultimately Trump ignored the advice of those three individuals with regards to making this announcement. A small anecdote in terms of how in sync or lack of in sync um, the State Department was. I was part of a group of people at Ohio University that was in discussions and in preparations for a delegation of U.S. universities to Jordan to meet with a, a representatives of uh, public universities in Jordan. The U.S. Embassy in Amman was partly involved in making this meeting possible. I was scheduled to fly out on Friday. And as far as we know, the conference was supposed to proceed as planned. After the Trump administration made its announcement, we got contacted by the U.S. Embassy person involved that said there is going to be a new State Department travel advisory warning issued. That warning is going to be such that we could not be sponsoring events. Therefore, the conference is canceled. You would think that the embassy in Amman, the U.S. Embassy in Amman, would have had some heads up of this statement being issued by President Trump and therefore would have at least given us some indication or perhaps just preemptively said, let's play it safe and reschedule for later without divulging to the participants what was going to happen. That did not happen. I was scheduled to fly out on Friday. The conference was canceled, I believe, on Wednesday or Thursday of last week. That is the level of coordination that is happening in the foreign policy establishment of the United States. That is the type of communication and planning that is going on between the State Department in Washington, D.C. and one of its most significant embassies in the region, uh, in Amman, Jordan. Uh, And I think that anecdote says a lot about the state of communication and collaboration within the foreign policy networks of the United States government. This is oversimplistic, and and forgive me, but why do we as a country, why do we not get the Middle East? It seems like we have misstep after misstep after misstep, administration to administration to administration. You know, if we could just point the finger at President Trump, that would be easy, but we can't. We really have to look back at administrations of both parties. Uh, in this country and and major, major mistakes in this region. Do we not understand cultural differences? Do we not understand the politics? What is it we don't get? Well, Tom, I mean, I guess I would have to say, you know, on the one hand, U.S. policy in the Middle East and North Africa region has been incredibly destructive and destabilizing, first and foremost, for the people of the region. Uh, It has involved the undermining of democratic governments. It has involved the overthrowing of democratic governments. It has involved wars. Uh, It has involved uh, economic devastation and uh, uh, many other elements. However, if we think of the United States government as a great power in the world, uh, and as sometimes I discuss as an empire in the world, The United States government has achieved its objectives in the Middle East. It has, uh, uh, it had effectively kept out the Soviet Union. 
It had secured access for its oil corporations and its own economy to the oil infrastructure of the Middle East. It has um, dominated the consumer market with U.S.-produced goods. Um, so on those fronts, the United States policy has been successful, and I put successful in quotation marks. The cost of that has been the self-determination of people in the Middle East, has been the integrity of uh, their bodies in wars, has been their ability to make ends meet, and has been uh, the fact that the United States is the largest supporter of authoritarian rule in the Middle East. Um, the number one export of the United States to the Middle East, Tom, weapons. Yeah. Right. right. And during the Iran-Iraq right. war, the United States was dealing weapons to both sides. So uh, I agree with you that the United States has a horrible track record uh, uh, in the Middle East and North Africa. But I think we're talking uh, on the basis of uh, metrics about human dignity about livelihood, about political freedoms, about aspirations. The problem is that U.S. policymakers do not have these metrics when they design their policies. They have U.S. strategic objectives, U.S. commercial interests in mind, U.S. military uh, uh, strategy that's being taken into consideration. And what happens when the United States behaves in the way it does internationally and particularly in the Middle East and North Africa, though my friends who work on Latin America or Southeast <laughs> Asia are probably thinking right now, hey, don't think you're so special <laughs> over right. there, right? Um, the, the United States government policy is to pursue these objectives. And I think the, the biggest problem, to, to go back to your question about maybe you're oversimplifying, but I don't think you're oversimplifying, is that we have to recognize the United States is an empire, and it operates like an empire around the rest of the world. People not in the United States don't feel a difference when the Republicans take over or the Democrats take over. Most people around the world do not experience a difference. And that is because when it comes to U.S. foreign policy, there is by and large a consensus that the United States is going to act in such a way. The differences have to do with methods. And have, style. And have to do with style. Yeah. And if you think of some of the major criticisms that have been leveled against Trump since assuming the presidency, they've been about style. They've been about presidents don't talk like that, and presidents should talk like this, and presidents should act like this. But they haven't necessarily been substantive criticisms of his foreign policies, that is. Right. Um, so I, I think you, you put your finger on perhaps the most important issue of what we're discussing is when are we in the United States, and I include myself in this circle as well, going to start to push our elected representatives, not only vis-a-vis -vis the domestic agenda, but also vis-a-vis -vis the international agenda. Well, that leads me to, to uh, my question circling back to where we began, and, and that is the average American out there uh, listening to us and the average American who listened to President Trump declare Jerusalem as the the capital of, of Israel, they go, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, you know, I've, I've got work to do. I've got a family to raise. Um, it, it doesn't seem that important to, to the average American. How important is it 
in in a, a broader sense, and what can the average American even do about it? Tom, another great question. I really enjoy this conversation with you, by the <laughs> Thank way. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I think the average American should first recognize, and I think a lot of Americans do, so I, I want to be clear about sure. this. Uh, some of the most insightful conversations I've had have been with average Americans about U.S. foreign policy. The question is, can they come together collectively and, and, and change things? The average American needs to recognize that U.S. policy is done in the name of American citizens and in the name of the United States. So that is the first reason they need to care about it. The second uh, reason they need to care about it is because the United States is, for better or worse, some type of representative government. And therefore, policies enacted by the U.S. government have some sort of accountability vis-a-vis -vis the electorate. But more importantly, you know, we're talking about the deficit. We're talking about the United States government budget. Perhaps we should talk about the fact that Israel is the largest recipient of foreign aid by, from the United States uh, and has been so for a number of decades. On average, $3 billion in military aid goes to Israel annually, wow. annually. So the fact that we want to have a conversation about how we should balance the budget and what should our priorities for spending be? Well, I have a question. Those $3 billion a year that go towards supporting one of the top five militaries in the world, a military that is currently occupying over 3 million Palestinians, denying them their political rights, not to mention pushing them off their lands through various mechanisms and policies that the international community and the UN Security Council has consistently criticized. Can't that money be spent more productively on education, on uh, health care, on infrastructure in the United States? When we think about the cost to the average American, how many students at Ohio University do I have in my classes whose parents served in Iraq and Afghanistan and who until today do not understand why they were deployed? And, and why they were made accomplices to the destruction and devastation of a country, uh, two countries, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, and uh, the destabilization of the region. Uh, and then we can talk about whether we're delivering on the benefits to veterans that they should be receiving and the care that they should be receiving after following orders when the United States said, we're going to invade and occupy a country. Um, so the average American needs to realize that the link between what the United States is doing overseas and how the average American is experiencing life on a daily level in the United States is not so separate. Really entwined. It, very much entwined, uh, both morally and ethically, but also at the level of economics and the level of where the United States, it's our tax dollars that are supporting Israeli policies vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians. It's our tax dollars that are supporting the authoritarian regime of Saudi Arabia in its brutal and consistent repression of its population. We need to think about our priorities. And when we talk about the budget and when we talk about entitlement and when we talk about tax reform, why aren't we to also talking about $3 billion in military aid to Israel annually? One last question, and that is, what should we be looking for next? What might be, you know, we're following demonstrations now, but what might be the next major move that we need to look for? 
Well, um, analytically, uh, I, I think we need to gauge, you know, what is going to be the response of the Palestinian leadership, um, a, a leadership that I have my criticisms of, but not the same criticisms that the United States government or, or the Israeli government level against them. They uh, can no longer hold on to the pretense that the United States is going to deliver a Palestinian state or a meaningful Palestinian state at that level. So one of the things many people are looking at is in addition to the outrage being directed at the Israeli government in the United States, this has brought to the fore a set of criticisms and issues people have had with the Palestinian leadership. Um, so I think we need to look and, and keep an eye on that. I think also that it's hard to think that this announcement was made out of the blue, that it wasn't part of some kind of quid pro quo uh, or arrangement with the Israeli government and with the Saudi government. We know that the Saudi government has for a while now been trying to uh, uh, normalize the idea that relations with Israel should be normalized, that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not as important as the public of the Middle East might make it out to be. So I think we have to look for what are the signs of what that quid pro quo might have been between the Israeli government, the United States government, and Saudi Arabia. Um, and I don't mean that in a conspiratorial sense. No, I mean, no. we know that international sure. relations are governed by these Absolutely. kind of dynamics. Um, so I think we have to look for that. And um, I think what's going to happen is that uh, the Palestinian uh, population, which has long critiqued the strategy of uh, the Palestinian leadership in putting all its eggs in the U.S. basket and all its eggs in a negotiation process that has yielded actually uh, reversals in their daily experiences, um, we might see the inauguration of a different political strategy by the Palestinian population. Um, some people have talked about a third intifada. Um, I'm not confident that the material uh, basis for such a, a, a popular uprising is in place right now. But uh, we have to think about uh, some structural shifts that might occur in reaction to this within the Palestinian community. And we should remember that um, many years down the line, when Palestinians perhaps return to a one-person, one-vote strategy vis-a-vis -vis the Israeli occupation, similar to the uh, African National Congress's uh, uh, strategy in apartheid South Africa, it was the United States and the Israeli government that buried the chance at a two-state solution. And this announcement is one of the hallmarks of that graveyard. Thank you so much for talking with us. And I hope as this unfolds, that you'll be able to come back and keep us updated. Well, thank you for having me. It would be an honor to join you again. Today, we've been talking with Middle East expert Dr. Ziad Abu-Rish about the destabilizing move of the United States and recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. And we welcome your feedback. So please rate our podcasts or review them through Apple Podcasts. 
If you have any questions or comments about our podcasts, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.